0: Good morning. Rain. How you doing? Nine o'clock, you awake? Rain. I like that. Any rain people in here? Are you enjoying what's going on? So, rain people, as your brother in grace and in love, what's wrong with you? Is <laughs> This is Southern California? I haven't seen blue sky in two days, and I've got the shakes already, so... <laughs> Well, now that I've insulted many of you, let me introduce myself. My name, my name is Dre. I'm uh, one of the pastors here. I'm excited to be with you, be with you. Okay, I'm excited this morning because not only we continue our series, but I said baptisms are awesome, and I'm excited to be able to celebrate that. So, like Mike said earlier, whether you're in the stream or whether you're in the summit, and I'm hopefully looking tall on the screens in there, we're glad that we're glad that you're here this morning. On your way in this morning, you got a program. Inside that program, if you would open that up, there is a message note sheet that's just an awesome tool that would help you follow along or, or write down and remember anything the Lord might be putting in your heart during the service. I'm going to go ahead and pray and we're going to get started. Father, we just thank you that you love us. Father, we thank you that those words of that last song that we sang ring true. Father, we thank you that that concept that we are sinking deeper and deeper into your love never changes. We thank you that that's not dependent on our circumstances. We thank you that that's not dependent on even our feelings. We thank you that your love is never ending, that your love is perfect, and we are literally drowning in it. And so today, as we continue our series, as we jump into your word, I pray that my word be a guide, but that your word be the star. I pray that your word continue to give us, whether we've been in church our whole lives, or whether this is one of our first few times that through your word, we get a deeper understanding of what it means that Jesus Christ loves us. We commit this time to your father in your son's name. Amen. So this morning, we're continuing a series that we started a little bit while ago called Jesus the Crucified King. Now if you're joining us for the first time, I wanna welcome you and I wanna take a few moments just to bring you up to speed to let you know what we've been doing for the last few months. See, this series we're in is actually the third in what I've been calling an epic trilogy of series that we've been in for a little over a year. See, we've been looking at the life and teachings of Jesus as told by one of the key leaders of his early movement, Mark. So we're in the second half of the Bible, the New Testament, looking at Mark's gospel. Now Mark was a close personal friend of the apostle Peter. So what Mark's gospel is, is Mark is writing down Peter's firsthand eyewitness account of what Jesus said and what Jesus did. Now in this series, Jesus the Crucified King, we've been focusing on the last week of Jesus' life, Passion Week, if you've heard that term before. And so this started on Sunday for him as he came in through the triumphal entry. Now I want to bring you up to speed on where we've been over the last couple of weeks. We're probably at Tuesday or Wednesday of Jesus' last week. And if you've been with us, then what you know is that Jesus has been teaching in the temple courts. He's been in this massive complex teaching, and Jesus has definitely come has definitely become an enemy of the religious establishment. So what they're doing while Jesus is teaching is they are sending delegations of their best. They are sending people to ask Jesus questions, not because they actually care about an answer, but because they're trying to trap Jesus. Mike's been using the picture of a press conference, if you will, where there's journalists whose whole purpose is to make that person look bad. So what they're hoping is they've worked really hard on these questions, and what they're hoping is to either get Jesus to say something that's going to make them less popular to the crowds, or they're going to hope to get Jesus to say something that they could then get him brought up on charges with. So if you've been with us over the last couple of weeks, you saw most recently that the Pharisees and the Herodians came to him and asked him the question about taxes and politics, If you were with us last week, you saw that the Sadducees came up to Jesus and asked him a theological question about resurrection. And if you've been with it, you've seen that, what has Jesus done to each of these groups? He has shut them down. And so what we're going to see is we're going to see one final question. But what's amazing about the question we're going to be looking at today is how radically different it is in presentation and tone from the questions that came before it. See, instead of a delegation that's been practicing this what we're going to get is we're going to get one person from the religious establishment. And instead of the uh, question being asked to trap Jesus, what we're going to get is this one person actually asking a genuine question because they want to hear Jesus' response. So if you've got your Bibles, open them up. If you've got your app, turn it on. On your note sheet, there's a section titled The Sincere Question. We're going to be going into chapter 12 of Mark. Now, as you're turning there, or if you have your apps, you're already there. As you're getting there, let me go ahead and set up the scene of what's happening. So this questioner, Mark describes him as a scribe. We're not given anything else, a name or anything. We're just told that this is a scribe. Now, if you're unfamiliar with scribes in the Old Testament, a good way to think about them is that they were considered the lawyers of their time. See, what a scribe specialized in was legal interpretation, Their specialty was, here's what the Old Testament law, here's what Jewish law actually says. And so what's going to happen is that the scribe, Mark is going to describe that he had heard the debates. He had been hearing the questions and we're told he liked what Jesus had to say. It's not often that we've seen the religious establishment giving Jesus an encouragement. But we're told he liked them and it wasn't, it wasn't an uncommon practice in this time that if there was a teacher that you liked, if there was a teacher that you felt had wisdom, that you would ask him a question to get his opinion. In fact, we do this now, do we not? So the scribe is going to come up to Jesus. Now, Matthew in his gospel indicates that this scribe is a Pharisee, is part of that political party. Now, in Mark's gospel, if you think about Jesus' encounter with Pharisees, have they been pleasant? No, no. So we would see this Pharisee coming up to Jesus, and for us, we would think that Jesus has full reason to be prejudiced, right? We would think that Jesus would have complete, complete reasons to go, oh, these guys again, and just kind of sit there and hold them at an arm's length, but he doesn't, and the key reason is because this guy is coming to ask a sincere question, Do you remember a few weeks ago when this started and Mike was teaching on the fact that they challenged his authority, Jesus is a short authority? Whose authority do you do this when? One of the points that Mike made was we see what we're willing to see. The difference between the first set of questions was they didn't care what the answer was. They just wanted their own goals and agenda. But when you ask a sincere question, the definition of that is you are actually willing to listen to whatever the answer is. And so what I love about Jesus in this, that we see that he doesn't care who he is. He doesn't care his political affiliation. He responds to the sincerity. And he's got a unique question for Jesus. So let's go ahead and read, starting at verse 28. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked them, of all the commandments, which is the most important? Let's stop right there. This was an important question for the religious establishment at the time. See, in the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses, the religious tradition had identified 613 commands and laws. That's a lot, right? So it was a common question. It was a common debate amongst religion lead, religious leaders. Is there a command or is there a law that supersedes all the others? It's hard to follow all 613. Is there something that should be our priority? And in fact, certain rabbis would take the 613 and put them into two categories, heavy laws and light laws. Heavy laws needed to be followed. Light laws were a suggestion. It was only okay, but they would do that under their own authority. So here is this scribe, somebody that specialized in legal interpretation, and he's coming to ask Jesus to paraphrase the question, out of all of these laws, is there one? That is our foundation? Is there one that is the foundation from which everything else flows out of? And so Jesus is going to give him an answer. But being Jesus, as brilliant and as awesome as he is, the guy asked for one law. Jesus is going to give him two. But the way he starts off the answer, Jesus is refocusing all of our theology. So look at verse 29. The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord God, the Lord is one. Now let me stop right there. Before Jesus goes into these commandments, what does he do? He's quoting out of the book of Deuteronomy. But why that was so important, considering the person he was talking to, was that in Jewish tradition, there was a confession or a creed called the Shema, which is the Hebrew word that means here? And so if you were a devout Jew twice a day, you would recite this confession that was composed of pieces of Deuteronomy and pieces of the book of Numbers. But it started with that direct quote. Hear, O Israel, the Lord God is one. See, the heart of the Shema was to remind people of the heart of the God's, God's holy scriptures, the Old Testament, that God is real, that God is one, and that God has relationship with his people. See, the religious establishment was good at taking God's word and burying it under man-made rituals and traditions and rules to the point where it got so hard to see what was God's actual word under all this nonsense. Jesus often would take people back to the heart of God's actual word. So this is his foundation, God is real, God is one and God is for his people. Now Jesus is gonna break down what does this look like in everyday life? Verse 30, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. All right, let's stop right there for a moment. What Jesus answered was nothing new if you were familiar with the scriptures because love the Lord your God came out of Deuteronomy. It was the next verse after the beginning of the Shema. Love your neighbor came out of Leviticus. Again, what Jesus did was he took them back to God's actual word and he reminded them of God's heart and his intent for his people. But do you see that what Jesus is saying is that the most important thing, our foundation is love and that the most important thing, it's not a half-hearted love. It's not a love that you give when you feel like it. It is a Love that is defined in the total. It is a total commitment where you don't hold anything back. Let's look at that first command love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. If you take each of those four elements and put it together, you have the totality of a person, do you not? The heart is more than just that which pumps blood at our systems. Biblically, the heart is considered your command center. The heart is where your emotions, where your decisions, where your leadership comes from. Your soul is where your God-given uniqueness, your identity, your wiring, what makes you you, that's in your soul. So are you loving God with your identity? Your mind is your opinions, your judgments, your intelligence, are you Growing in the vastness that is God? Are you pursuing God with your head? Your strength is your physical capacity, but it's also your resources. What do you have that you can give? Do you have a home you can open up? Can you help financially? All of these together form a total commitment. Now, if you were with us in the last series, A Call to Follow. Do you remember that there's been a recurring theme all throughout Mark that Jesus talks about following him is a 100% deal? Do you remember in the last series that Jesus said, pick up your cross and follow me? And Mike did an incredible job where he explained that that Jesus was basically saying, are you willing to give me your literal life? So to put it very bluntly as Jesus paints this picture, three out of the four of these isn't gonna cut it he's calling us to love with a total commitment. God wants all of us. And then he moves on and talks about if you love God, what that means is you're going to press into God. If you remember a couple of weeks ago, press into your vine. And what happens when you press into God, you start becoming more like him. You start becoming more Christ-like. And when that happens, that changes the way we see the world, does it not? And so the more we become like God, the more we start seeing his creation, us as people, like he does. See, these were two quotes from the Old Testament, but before Jesus, they most likely weren't taught together like that. If you love God, it is going to change the way you see his creation. And so the overflow of that is to love your neighbor. Now, what Jesus is doing is very spectacular in this, in this statement, Because to a scribe, loving your neighbor was other Jews, other people like him. But to Jesus, loving your neighbor was all of creation. See, in your life group homework this week, you're going to look at this account in Luke's gospel. First of all, a gospel written by a non-Jew. And this account was immediately followed by the parable of the Good Samaritan. And so what Jesus is doing, if you love God, you will love his creator and we will erase the question, who is my neighbor? Because the answer is obvious, everyone. And we're gonna love him with a zeal and a vigor. And then Jesus says, no greater, there are no greater commandments than these. So if you think of this as our foundation, let's take the most popular example of the Old Testament law, the 10 commandments. Those 10 commandments Those 10 commandments are specific ways to love God and to love people, are they not? And so we see why this is our foundation. Now, what I love next is the scribe's response. Again, he was part of the establishment. So there's a part of me that would immediately assume he wouldn't respond favorably to this. But check out how he responds in verse 32. Well said, teacher, the man replied, you were right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. Verse 33, to love God with all your heart, with all your understanding and with all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. He chewed Jesus an encouragement. He's like, You're right. He asked a sincere question and he was open to the answer and it resonated. And here's why what he said was a big deal. See, so he said, Having the right foundation, having the right heart is more important than sacrifices. So that was the rituals, that was the stuff, that was the religion, right? As part of the establishment, that's what they did best was promote the stuff, was promote the ritual, was promote all these things. And here he is basically risking his political career going, you know what? You're right. All of this ritual means nothing if my heart is not rooted in love for God and love for other people. I love that statement. And then let's look at what happens next in verse 34. When Jesus had saw that he had answered wisely, let me just stop right there. I would love for Jesus to say about anything I ever said that was wise. When Jesus said that he had answered wisely, he said to him, "You are not far from the kingdom of God." And from then on no one dared to ask him any more questions. Of course not. Here's what's unique about Jesus's last statement. Only a sovereign king can make a judgment about somebody's heart like that, right? And while Jesus said, yeah, that's awesome, you're not far, but he's not there. That gap may be small, but it could still mean eternity. Now, what's interesting about this is, I was thinking about this in this week, I really wonder what happened to this guy. I really wonder, did he eventually give his life to Jesus? I wonder, like, are we gonna get to heaven and be in Jesus' court and this guy's just gonna have a sign around his neck? I was the scribe in Mark as we go into it. <laughs> but this week I was talking to my friend, uh, I was talking to my friend Waz, and he was pointing out that we look at interactions in Mark's gospel that Jesus had with people like this, or you take somebody like the rich young ruler, and intentionally it seems that Mark leaves these endings ambiguous. And my friend was pointing out that a lot of the reason seems to be because Mark is asking the readers, us, to put ourselves into that situation and go, if we were there reacting with Jesus' words, how would we respond? And so that's the question we have to ask ourselves because this com- these commandments, the greatest commandment, as most of your Bibles have this section annotated, is a famous piece of scripture, is it not? But because it is so foundational to the way we live out our faith, we need to ensure that we have a proper and deep understanding of it. So there in your note sheet, we're gonna jump into a section titled Understanding the Command. And your first fill-in is this. God's love is our foundation. So if you get to know me, one thing you'll find out about me very quick is I am not a handy guy. Tools, building, nope, not my thing. I walk into a Home Depot and I cry immediately. I don't know where anything is, let alone I don't know what anything is. So being that I'm not a handy guy, even I understand the importance of having a solid foundation. Because if you don't have a solid foundation, you have no shot of building something with any form of stability, right? And so this is an amazing metaphor for our lives. See, our foundation for our lives is whatever we devote our lives to. Our foundation is whatever we build our lives on, and that is going to dictate the stability of our lives. See, everybody has a foundation, but the question we need to ask is do you have the right foundation? Because one of the awful things about sin, one of the consequences is is that when sin came into our lives and messed everything up, what it did is it convinced us that instead of having God's love to be our foundation, that other things seemed better. And so we walked away from God's love and we said, you know what, I'm going to build my life around my career. I'm going to build my life around my status. I'm going to build my life around my identity, the way people see me. I'm going to build my life based on my hurt or my experience. And we try to build our lives on all of these shaky foundations and it falls apart. But what we see through Jesus is the heart of the father. What we see that God's heart for his creation is to restore us, to bring us back to the point where we are building on our solid foundation, which is God's love. But now we have to ask an even deeper question here. If we're going to build our lives on the foundation of love, meaning what we build will be an outpouring of love, do we honestly have a proper understanding of what love is? Have you noticed that in our culture, we are completely schizophrenic when it comes to defining love? We use this word a lot, We use this word in a lot of different circumstances. And have you noticed that depending on the person saying it, depending on the circumstance or the object of the word being used, that word can connotate radically different definitions? I love my wife. I love a bucket of chicken. I love that movie. I love this car. Do they all mean the same thing? We sit there and go, no, but it's confusing, isn't it? And there's many words that are like that, but no word other than love affects our, is, is vital to our foundation. We use this word so much, but I'm willing to bet, myself included, a lot of us don't have any idea what it actually means. It makes me think of a quote from one of my favorite movies, The Princess Bride. In... All right, 80s people. In The Princess Bride, <laughs> in The Princess Bride, there was the bald villain Vicini. and he was creating these traps to keep Wesley, the man in ba- the black, from catching up to them. And every time, Wesley, every time Wesley outsmarted him, what would he say? Inconceivable. And he would say it over and over again. And finally, Inigo Montoya, the best character in The Princess Bride, Finally, Nico Montoya says this, you keep using that word, I do not think it means what you think it means. <laughs> But that quote is true to how we approach the word and the concept of love. In fact, just a few weeks ago, we celebrated Valentine's Day. I remember as a kid that you're taught in school, Valentine's Day is a celebration of love. If my definition of love was based on Valentine's Day, then what love is is cheesy, heart-shaped boxes and fat babies with wings. <laughs> but however we define love culturally tends to be how we define love to Jesus. Jesus how we view our love to Jesus and how we view his love back to us. And there's a lot of different ways to define love, but there is one common denominator in all these different cultural ways, and that's emotions. Now, hear me clearly. I'm not saying that emotions are wrong. Emotions can be an awesome part of love and an incredible gift that add to it. But the problem I notice in my life and the problem I notice often in our culture is that our definition of love begins and ends with Emotions. I love because I feel. I love because I have that warm feeling going on inside of me. Here's the flaw with that. Here's the flaw with emotions. Emotions fade. And there's so many people that in different types of relationships, you're shaken to your core at that point when those emotions have faded and you're sitting there going, does that mean I don't love anymore? And especially when those emotions have faded towards God and you sit there and go, does that mean I don't love God anymore? Or if I don't feel it back, does that mean that God doesn't love me anymore? And so what we need to do, if we're going to understand this charge, this foundation of God's love, we need a much better definition of love. In fact, we need God to write our definition of that. And so that leads me to your second fill-in. Love requires total commitment. The Greek word that Jesus uses in this passage for love, this verb is the word agapau. If you've been around church before, this is where we also get the word agape. This is often the word in the New Testament used to describe God's active love for his people. But this is also the type of love used to describe in the New Testament that God calls us as his people to have towards him and to have towards other people. Agape is not defined by emotions. Agap- agapau, excuse me, is a deep love that is defined as unselfish and unconditional. In other words, to love in an agapau way means that you have a commitment to love completely regardless of the circumstances, of the emotions, of anything, even reciprocation. Does that make sense? Regardless of anything else, you are committed to love completely. And we see this example through God the Father, do we not? He created a people and they rebelled against him in sin. They committed high treason, as Mike says. And what does he do? He loves us anyways. He pursues us. He fights for us. He ultimately sent his one and only son, Jesus, to come and die for our sin and our mistakes. You know, when I look at my son, when I think about my daughter, who's a few weeks away from joining us, I can't imagine ever sacrificing them for somebody I love, let alone for somebody I consider an enemy. See, I realize that my love has limits, but God's love does not. And here's what blows my mind. This Pow love is what he's calling us to do. Do you realize the opportunity God is giving us? Sin has made us a completely selfish people, but Jesus is transforming us to be a selfless people. And it's built on this foundation of love. This has been Mark's recurring theme, to love completely. Now that we have that definition out there, I need to address some reality. We need to just speak openly, do we not? And the reality is this. There's many of us in this room that we hear the teaching like this that we read those words, we see Jesus calling us to love completely, to hold nothing back, to love in the total. And if we were to be completely honest, that sounds more like a burden than anything else. There's many of us that hear that and our mind immediately goes to, I don't have any more bandwidth. I don't have room in my planner or my to-do list. I don't have any more time. I don't know how I'm gonna do this. Let me ask you rhetorically, does the thought of giving 100%, does the thought of learning to love more or giving better to Jesus bring any type of excitement or joy, or is it a complete stressor? And for many of us, we live in the reality of it's a stressor. We live in the reality, I don't know how I'm going to do this. Again, I'm looking at the planner, and it is full. And there's many of us that we live in that guilt. I'm not giving enough. I'm never going to measure enough. I'm never going to be a good Christian, so I'm just not even going to try. And so what we need, for many of us that are in that situation, we need a freeing truth. Because this this redefinition that we're doing of God's love is not something that burdens us, but it's something that frees us. And so what we need to do, like we sang earlier, is we need to sink deep more into that love because when we actually experience that agapal love that the Father has for us, we start seeing that is not a burden in the least, but that which brings us freedom and peace. See, what I love is a few weeks ago in our life groups, we, had, we were studying a section in 2 Peter, and the apostle Peter was encouraging Christians that he was writing, he's like, when it comes to your faith, make every effort. And what I love about the context of that passage is that Peter was encouraging Christians because it was a time in history where they were under heavy persecution. It was a time of heavy stress. It was a time of heavy worry. And Peter is saying, make every effort. In one sense, he's saying, work harder. But Peter's tone is not a finger wagging in your face. It's not a burden. He's going, this is what's going to give you peace. This is what's going to free you. The Lord is calling us to love like he loves us. But the incredible thing about the Lord is he doesn't leave us on our own to figure out how to do it. See, if I'm gonna learn how to love God and love my brothers and sisters in an Pal love, that's not gonna happen on my own effort. That's not gonna happen on me filling up my to-do list with even more things. The only way that's gonna happen is to let Jesus Christ change me from the inside out to see his love completely different. And that leads me to the third point on your note sheet. You're gonna see that there's a couple quotes under under your second point, but I'm just excited to get to the third, sheet, third point. So we're just going to jump ahead. Our love is an overflow of God's love. How is it possible that we can love God and others in an agapal love? Because we've experienced it. Because it's a response of God's love for us. I've used this image before as I've been up here that if you imagine your life as an empty cup and you imagine God's love, his grace, his mercy, his truth, all that good stuff as a never-ending stream filling up your cup, what's eventually going to happen to that cup? What's going to overflow and it's going to flood every other aspect of your life, right? And that's how we love the way that God is calling us to love is because he first loved us. See, to love like God does means that we need to constantly be experiencing the love that he has for us because that's our source of it. Over the summer, I got to officiate a wedding and at the rehearsal dinner, the incredible mother of the groom, her simple charge to the, to the happy couple, fall in love with each other every day. And those of you that are married, you know how vital that truth is. But it's same in our relationship with God. See, we often come to Jesus because we need stuff. And sometimes it's good stuff. But how often do we come to Jesus just to be with him? Just to encounter him? Just to fall in love with him? Because here's what's amazing when you fall in love. Is that when you fall in love with someone, those things that we associate as being a burden no longer feel so. Think about in a romantic relationship. When you're in love with someone, all of a sudden these things are a burden. You're excited to do. Driving long distances by yourself just to see that person. You're willing to do. Go to boring work functions with them just so you could be there. You're willing to do. Go and see bad movies because they wanted to. You're willing to do. I use this example uh, on tomorrow. Actually, my wife and I are celebrating our eight-year wedding anniversary. And when we first got married, it's more celebrate her. I'm not easy to live with. When we first got married... (laughs) I had grown up in a household and my entire household was passionate fans of professional wrestling, WWF, WWE. I loved that stuff. And so my wife didn't necessarily picture her happily ever after involving her Monday nights watching that on television, but you know what? She loved me, she watched it, and she bought a t-shirt to cheer people on because she loves me, (laughs) right? So what's the difference then? What changes those acts to be a bur- to go from a burden to something we want to do with joy? And it's the simple truth and concept of the word presence. You don't fall in love with a rule book. You don't fall in love with an idea. You fall in love with the actual presence of a person and it's true with Jesus, if I want to stop seeing the way Jesus calls me to live my life as a burden, then I need to start experiencing the actual presence of Jesus because when I do, you better believe I'm going to fall in love, real love, agapal love, because I'm going to experience that Jesus' charge to love God and to love people is a response to his presence, which is filled with his love. See, loving God and loving people is going to be hard sometimes, it's going to be messy sometimes, but I can also tell you this it will hands down be the greatest accomplishment of our lives. There in your note sheet, there's a verse that I love that reminds me of the Father's love. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is the love that has been given to us. And because we walk with Jesus, it is the love we can give back. So finally, there in your note sheets, I just have one question of reflection for you. Do you love completely? When it comes to loving God, do you love completely? When it comes to loving people, and that's a topic we're going to dig deeper into in our life groups this week, do you love completely? But let me challenge you in this area. I don't want you to just sit there and answer this question Here. This is a question I've given for you, for you to go before the presence of Jesus and ask that question of him. Because whatever answer Jesus may bring up, it's gonna be in his presence and it's not gonna be wrapped in burden or shackles. It's gonna be wrapped in his love. And we're gonna wanna act excitedly. Remember I said earlier, I wonder what happened to the scribe. I really do. I hope for the best that he crossed that gap and he made a decision. But this morning, I'm standing before you guys and I'm really excited because we're about to celebrate some people getting into the waters of baptism who heard what the scribe did and they did make that decision. And I'm very excited about that. So I'm gonna pray for us and then we're gonna transition in time of baptism. Father, thank you that you love us. Father, thank you that we drown in it each and every day. Thank you that wherever we go, whatever we do, whatever we thought we are, You freely give your love no matter what. Father, thank you that that is the foundation on which we build our lives. And we pray that we become a people that continue to learn to love completely. I pray that we be a people that go to you to have this notion of following you being a burden lifted from us, that we run excitedly towards you. We run excitedly towards our brothers and sisters because we are so filled with the love of God that we want to carry out that charge to love others as well. Jesus, thank you for that good love. In his son's name, amen. Hey, so like I said, we're gonna celebrate some baptism. So if you're here this morning to be baptized, would you come on up and join Mike at the stage? Can we give everybody a round of applause as they come up? (laughs) That's our battle cry, isn't it? To give God, to give his people everything. And so I hope as you leave this place that you reflect on the fact that you are loved and that because you are loved, you are capable of showing that love. So let us be a people this week that that is our foundation, amen? amen. Hey, before you leave this place, if you'd like to pray with somebody, over to my right, your left on that far side, there's a prayer corner. There's some amazing men and women that would love to pray with you before you leave. Next week, we really hope you can be here as we continue this series. It's gonna get really good. Because the religious establishment, they've had their shot. Now it's Jesus's. And he's going to start asking a couple questions on his own to start challenging not just their authority, but start challenging their view on what did you, how do you see defined Messiah? And what did you expect him to come and do? So we really hope you can join us next week. We'll see you then.